Welcome to the Dark Depth Podcast, your go-to place for the modern and legacy format. I'm one of your host, Billy Mitchell. Uh, Michael Mapson not able to join me this week, and I thought I wanted to do something a little different. Uh, I don't normally get a chance to talk about theory, which is something I really love to do. And you know, if you go back to my days of writing articles on uh, Card Shark and uh, <laughs> all those different uh, websites. Uh, it's something that I really enjoy, but something I've also you know, really enjoyed is talking about the history of Magic. Uh, I've been playing myself since 2001, and I think there's really nothing better than thinking about where Magic has been and where we're going. So I wanted to do something a little different while you know, I had the opportunity. Uh, this was kind of a last-minute decision, though, unfortunately. So I, I tried to research this as best as I can, and there was definitely going to be some shortcomings in my story, my narrative, but I think it's good enough to give you a comprehensive view of what happened in the legacy format from my perspective. Uh, and, you know, hopefully spark a discussion between you and, you know, friends and family, people that you know in your local magic community. So, uh, I guess join me while we go down memory lane. Uh, but before we get too far ahead, I do want to make sure I give a shout out uh, to our friends over at the European Legacy Masters. Uh, they're doing some really cool stuff this weekend. Uh, alongside the Four Season Summer uh, Tournament, uh, they are going to be playing uh, the European Legacy Masters. Uh, 21 different countries represented, uh, playing some of the, you know, our favorite format, Legacy. Uh, they are going to have this uh, live streamed so you can check this out on Twitch. I'm going to put the information in the show notes so you can check that out. Uh, but if you're interested in finding the information on Twitter, it is at EU Legacy Masters. And I'm very excited to watch this coverage. I think the Legacy format is in a very cool place. And, you know, the fact that we've been able to see cards be added in different ways and the format still be fun and explosive and you know, at times, I think insanely challenging, I think is a testament to how deep this format can be. But let's go back. Let's talk about a time before that. I think if you start going back in Magic's history, it's always came down to one thing. It was never the big flashy spells. It was never, you know, how do I get this uh, massive creature into play? It was always... Where do I start? And I think in my time playing Magic, I've always imagined the start being a little pesky 1-1. One, one. one that would be backed up by a daze or a force of will. One that would dominate gameplay, even though it started off pretty unassuming. And to anybody who knows me or knows, you know, what I know, I'm not talking about Delver of Secrets, but that's where the story's going to end up. I'm actually talking about Nimble Mongoose. It's one of those cards that, when I started playing Magic, it was one of the first introductions to what is a high-level quality card. Nimble Mongoose was unassuming. It's not doing anything flashy. It's not doing anything terribly scary. Well, that is until you need to remove it. Oh, if you can remove it. I think Nimble Mongoose is the, one of these perfect examples of what a magic card can be in the right deck. Uh, for those who don't re don't remember or don't know, uh, Nimble Mongoose was an uncommon from Odyssey. Uh, it was a single green. It had what we now call Shroud. Uh, it couldn't be the target of spells or abilities. And it had a very neat ability called Threshold. Uh, which gave it plus two, plus two if you had seven or more cards in your graveyard. Now, this card is going to eventually be joined by the hero, the villain in our story, but for right now, it's being joined by cards that I wouldn't consider oppressive, uh, especially when we're looking through the lens which we're going to be looking at with the length that we're going to be looking at it with. But we are going to see a lot of familiar friends. We're going to see things like flooded strand. We're going to see things like Tropical Island, Volcanic Island. But back in 2005, we didn't have the option to be playing more powerful cards like Delver Secrets or Tarmogoyf. We're playing things like a Fledgling Dragon, uh, a 4-mana 2-2 that 
eventually became a world-beating 5-5 with fire-breathing once you had Threshold and Werebear, which I think still has probably one of the best flavor texts of any card in Magic. Uh, he exercises his right to bear arms. A 2-mana 1-1 one, one that added a green mana for you know tapping it and eventually became a 4-4 four, four, once again with Threshold. And for those who notice the theme, this deck was called Canadian Threshold, which I think is a perfect name uh, for a Magic deck. Uh, very clear what's going on here. As you start going through this deck, though, you start to see some things that I think are reminiscent of what happens today. Brainstorm, Days, Force of Will, Lightning Bolt. But it's obviously not as juiced up as we see in the current day. Things like Mental Note and Theorem Visions end up making an appearance, where eventually those things would become things like Ponder, uh, which for uh, the better part of, uh, I guess, Magic's history, uh, has been banned at this point in Modern, and even something like Preordain isn't even thought of yet. Uh, Cyborg cards like Pyroclasm, which still sees play from time to time, uh, was being met with things like Naturalize. And this isn't in some weird budget deck, right? This isn't a Grand Prix in Philadelphia in 2005. It's something recent enough that you probably have seen this deck. And starting to go through the this top eight, you start to see some other particular decks. Um, things like uh, Chris Pakula in this top eight, uh, having a dead guy ale, a good old black-white, I don't want to call it tempo or control or aggro, I mean, it's hard to describe what happens when you're playing Dark Ritual into Hypnotic Spectre on turn one, and following that that up with a Sinkhole or a Hymn to Torok on turn two. But this was a format that was, you know, more or less dominated by cards that seem a lot more humble by 2023 standards. While Dark Confident, I think, is still a legacy playable card, it's, it's probably not a card I'm going to slot into my deck immediately. Uh, things like Nantuko Shade were monsters in the standard format, but not so much in the legacy format, uh, at least today. Uh, but you still do have, you know, decks like Goblins with their Gem Palm Incinerators and Goblin Lackeys, Goblin Pile Drivers, Ringleaders that still show up in legacy format today. And actually, looking at the the Goblins list, there's a lot of similarities to things I would expect in the 2023 list, 18 years later. I still expect to see Rashad on Ports and Wastelands, some number of mountains, some Aether Vials. But the rest of this top eight is a lot of things I wouldn't expect to see. Uh, a red-white rift deck with Eternal Dragon, a Chromeless Vengeance, and backed up by Slice and Dice, Humility, and Lightning Rift. Uh, a, ge a deck that is playing Oriok Salvage Keepers alongside Gamekeeper. And you still have your Cabal Therapies and your Innocent Bloods and Tainted Packs. And even if we're looking at the decks that eventually would be playing and wanting Delver Secrets, uh, the decks are oddly very different. I mean, we're playing things like Meddling Mage, uh, Mystic Enforcer. And these cards were not just fine, they were good. They were desirable cards. So, in 2005, this was something that we were kind of expecting. Uh, looking at some of the decks going forward, though, this is going to change significantly. If you fast forward to 2011, and I don't want to go too far ahead, but let's go to May. It's a great year. Uh, I think myself, I was somewhere in college doing something my junior year, pro probably moving out of the dorms. And meanwhile, Reed Duke was making top eight of GP Providence. This is a format that I think is particularly interesting because, I mean, one, this is a very solid top eight. I mean, you have uh, Reed Duke, Paulo Vitor-Dama de Rosa, uh, Alex Macheltan, playing some decks that I think are 
hard to define, uh, but are definitely the best decks in the format at the time. Things like Mono Blue Merfolk, uh, Painter, obviously, always making an appearance. Uh, but Reed Duke was playing the premier rug deck at the time, which obviously did not even have a hint of anything Delver Secrets related. In fact, uh, we were playing <laughs> four copies of Natural Order and one copy of Progenitus. It's a deck that was essentially just called uh, either No Rug in most cases or Pro Rug, which I think is a probably apt name considering that we were just putting Progenitus into play. Uh, get Progenitus in your hand? Well, you have Brainstorm. Let's put that away. You run out of Brainstorms? Oh, don't worry. You've got Vendillion Click. And all these cards ideally would allow you to put a natural order onto the stack, resolve it, and get the precious Progenitus. This was the pinnacle of deck building at this, at this time, uh, which I think is very wild. And I think Legacy was in a very interesting spot, considering what was going to happen very, very soon to the format. At this point, we have people playing Legacy. It's, it's a format that is being seen, it's being played on the SCG tour. I do remember hanging out in my dorm and watching uh, coverage of uh, Jerry Thompson throwing down uh, with Callblade and Legacy. But it is also a format that is going to be rocked very, very soon. So, the one thing I do appreciate about 2011 is that it was a much simpler time. Uh, but it was also a time where Legacy, I think, was in a, a rut, if you want to call it that. Uh, while there were a lot of things going on in the world, I think Legacy was in a spot where we were kind of bored. Uh, <laughs> the One of the things I think that people kind of missed about that t point in time, and I, the, unless you were playing on the SCG Tour or watching the SCG Tour, is that Mental Misstep really did a number on the format. Uh, mind you, that set came out a long time ago, I mean, relative to 2011, but Mental Misstep was a card that, for the most part, put a damper on creativity. I mean, who wants to play a one-drop if it's just going to get Mental Misstepped? I mean, why even put it in your deck at this point? Well, I guess, unless you want to play Mental Misstep. So, I guess we'll play Mental Misstep to counter Mental Missteps. Uh, that seems fair. Okay, well, if we're countering that, should we not play one-drops? Oh, we should probably play one-drops. Oh, man. Well, let's play a deck that doesn't play one-drops. That seems fun for Magic. And eventually, we end up seeing this card getting... Uh, shown the curtain <laughs> for what it is uh, from the legacy format, which kind of opened the door for people to do more fun things, more interactive things, because stifling one drops in a, in the format is not really fun. I mean, who wants to get their goblin lackey countered? Uh, who wants to start off with a hand depending on Aether Vial only to have it eventually be sucked away by a mental misstep? And really, who wants to have the war of mental misstep, your mental misstep, all mental misstep, that mental misstep? It's just not really interesting. Decks were splashing for mental misstep, even though they weren't playing blue, just because they knew the value of casting it in a deck was just so important. So instead of actually playing mental misstep, people went other places. And one of the things that I think put a lot of what was going to happen to the legacy format into motion was uh, what ended up happening in May 19th, 2011. Uh, this is more or less the beginning of the, what we would call, modern format. Uh, modern was a format that started off a magical line as a non-sanctioned event, uh, but eventually became a, a formal event uh, later in August 12th, uh, 2011. Um, eventually, uh, for, for those who don't know, um, Pro Tour Philadelphia was scheduled to be extended. Now, extended was a a beautiful format, and if you want to listen to us Wayne poetic about extended, feel free to go back to episode 100. Uh, extended in my day, and I feel very old for saying that out loud, uh, was known as Type 1.5, 1.x. Uh, 1.5 was legacy, uh, but 1.x. Uh, was a non-rotating form or was a rotating format uh, that included additions of 
from the most recent years. So it is kind of like modern, but kind of like standard, but kind of like legacy, but kind of like a format I'm not really interested in playing. Uh, one of the issues that ended up happening with this set is that we kept seeing the format keep moving through this place of what am I looking at? Um, in the current iteration, the the last time that we saw it, um, the format was just basically the last four sets. You could call it a double standard if you want to. Uh, that wasn't the original uh, view of it, but it's what it started as. And the format was playable, right? Uh, but it wasn't great. And it ended up having this kind of stagnant format that didn't change nearly as much as it needed to, as often as it needed to, where essentially the boogeyman of Standard's Path would just go hang out and, you know, kick around other decks. It was hard to innovate. It was hard to change anything. It was just that format that you had to play during PTQ season. And that was kind of exhausting. Uh, mind you, at some point, it was the last seven years of blocks and core sets. Uh, and each autumn, it would rotate to get the next one. And seven years is a long amount of time. Uh, now, the last iteration, when people wanted to kind of revitalize the format, uh, was to do the last four years. And there's only so many things you can do when the best deck from the last four years was something like uh, Mistbind Click and Bitter Blossom. So rather than endure that and, you know, unfortunately get to throw around your Dark Depths, which is the last time we see that in a more recent non-Legacy set, they just changed it. And they didn't do it all at once. They kind of phased things out. Uh, my, meanwhile, you can't play with all the cards that you want to, but in 2011, we start introducing the modern format. And the modern format, for the most part, is a facelift for anyone who wanted to play Eternal Magic, but didn't want to commit to the heavy price tags of your Fourth of Wills and your Underground Seas. Mind you, at the time, Underground Sea was a much cheaper card, which I think is amazing. But uh, it is definitely a card that I can imagine would be a little too expensive for someone just getting into the format. So in 2011, we bring along uh, the modern format. Uh, for those who don't remember, uh, we do start off with some cards that get banned uh, before the Pro Tour. Uh, things like Ancestral Vision, Bitter Blossom, Dread Return, Glimpse of Nature, Golgari, Grave Troll, Hypergenesis, Jason Mind Sculptor, Mental Misstep, Stoneforge Mystic, Valakut the Molten Pinnacle, and Synthesis Divining Top started off in the format being banned, right? Uh, rather than try to figure these things out, we're just going to get rid of them. Uh, one of the criteria that they picked to have this starting ban list was to make sure that the format was not about winning on turn three. Turn four? Fine. But we're not interested in winning on turn three. Uh, we do not want to have things like Dread Return. We don't want to have things like uh, Stoneforge Mystic. And I think a lot of these cards are things that were... I don't want to say oppressive, but dominated their respective standard formats, and they wanted a fresh face. So why not ha why not get rid of some of those cards? After the Pro Tour, <laughs> they decided that we should probably change some things. Uh, we ended up seeing Blazing Shoal, which was a key piece in the Infect deck. Uh, we see Cloud Post, which was a deck all its own. Green Sun Zenith. Uh, Ponder and Preordain, all three of them adding a lot of consistency to green and blue decks respectively, as well as Rite of Flame just being an explosive addition to uh, certain decks in terms of mana production. And we would see some additional bands through, uh, throughout the years, uh, Punishing Fire and Wild the Coddle. Uh, we eventually do see some cards coming off, though, things like Valakut the Molten Pinnacle. And the format slowly but surely gets shaped into what we kind of now know as modern. 
Uh, it is a powerful format. It is innovative. It does a lot of things very well, and it's it's fun. Um, and some cards would eventually come off, but I guess that's really another story. But this kind of puts Legacy in a weird spot, because suddenly now you've got a format that has a lot of the same things. Obviously more powerful cards, but what do you do? I Do you need to play this? I mean, Modern is fun. It's cheaper. There's more recent cards. They don't need to f- worry about finding these reserve list served list cards uh force of will is not an issue i don't need to worry about you know finding three more copies of a 60 dollar card uh in terms of my duels so what can i do and what ended up happening is that the format in a lot of ways just kind of hung out kind of strung out and we end up seeing going down the rabbit hole, a set in October that ends up releasing, which is, I think, arguably one of the best sets of all time. Uh, On September 30th, 2011, we end up seeing Innistrad, which I think is perfect, it being something that comes out right before the Halloween season. Uh, A top-down design block block based on Gothic Horror, which eventually would come to add Dark Ascension in 2012, along with Avacyn Restored. And a lot of players, there's a huge boom for magic that happened with the Innistrad set. It maybe has to do with the cool uh, gothic feel. Maybe it has to do with the images of zombie and really horror uh, genre that it evokes. But I think it really has to do with the fact that this was just the perfect time for people who were getting into... Uh, that that fantasy gameplay era, I think, coming off of what was previously a set that was, I don't want to say ex- not exciting, but just very different. Uh, I think the Innistrad set had something that was relatable. I mean, monsters. <laughs> uh, I think people like werewolves. I think people like zombies. And I think people were willing to give a chance to a card game that... Maybe it doesn't seem cool on the surface. Obviously, they're wrong. But it seems fun. And the images look interesting. And as we get deeper and deeper into the Innistrad block, people get engrossed with what's going on. This battle for survival from the humans, this isolation of their feeling from each other and trying to fight for their lives from werewolves and zombies, the scabs and the drowned I think the set did a really good job of getting people pulled into a story that was gripping and relatable. Not that I've ever been attacked by zombies or spirits or vampires or werewolves, but it was something that I could understand. There was people really just trying to survive and horrible, horrible things that came out of a nightmare situation and were able to hopefully eventually make their way out. And this set is just filled with power. And then coming back at it, looking at some of the cards that we end up seeing in this, in that block in general, um, Avacyn and Gristlebrand. I think Avacyn angel of hope is still one of those cards that whenever it lands on the EDH table, I'm always terrified of Gristlebrand constantly beats me in Legacy, and I don't think that's going to change as long as Reanimator's the deck. Lingering Souls was a card that was, at one time, a Legacy card, a modern card, and for sure a standard all-star. Liliana the Veil has seen a resurgence now that it's gotten printed back in standard, uh, but we're also expecting this, or this was also a card that was uh, a very big player in Legacy and Modern for years. Snapcaster Mage is this is the first iteration of it, and Snapcaster Mage still continues to see play in the legacy format. But this is where we get the first real big innovation to that threshold archetype. A single blue common from this set, Delver Secrets. 
And I think Delver also does a very good job of being something that is, I don't want to say underwhelming, but hard to evaluate in a limited format and looking through different reviews and things like that, which, by the way, is super hard. A shout out to Rhystic Studies, who is, I think, amazing at finding all these uh, bits of information throughout Magic's history. It's very difficult. When you start looking at people's opinions of Delver Secrets, people right away acknowledge the fact that Delver Secrets look powerful. Definitely not in limited, uh, probably not in standard, but it, maybe in legacy. Definitely not in vintage. It's it's probably fine in vintage, eh, but legacy probably seems like the place for it. And going back to 2011, I do remember Delver Secrets being all over the place in standard eventually. You start combining that with things like Preordain and Ponder, and it flips fairly consistently. And this ended up being a deck that was dominating standard until it left. You know, Phantasmal Bears, a la Todd Anderson, I remember, at GP Baltimore, I believe, in 2011. Uh, and that was one of my first GPs, which always holds a special place in my heart. But you also start seeing this in the legacy format. So what eventually was, you know, this Canadian Threshold deck was no longer playing just Nimble Mongoose. By 2011, we already had Tom Rigoyf that had joined the team. Things like Dismember uh, became more or less stock, and things like Spell Snare and Stifle had also joined the party. But I think the biggest change was when we started getting another one drop. In addition to our Nimble Mongoose, we had Delivery Secrets. Now, I don't need to tell you that Tom Rigoyf is a huge upgrade over Werebear. Uh, Delver Secrets is a massive upgrade over most one-drops at this time. Uh, in comparison, uh, looking through what I could at least, uh, it looked like people were playing uh, like Scrib, Scrib Fairies or something like that. Not a lot of good one-drops <laughs> for Blue. Uh, something that you could compare it to like, I don't know, Card Ape. I mean, that would be great. Uh, Delver Secrets was, in a lot of ways, a very consistent one-mana, three-two flyer, and more or less what it is today. I mean, for some people. I know some people it never flips for. But when you start looking at a deck with four Brainstorms, four Ponders, this card tends to flip a little bit more constantly than it would otherwise. And it wasn't the only thing holding the fort down, because Tom Rigoyf at this point was also a very efficient beater. The format, is, in a lot of ways, is defined by what you can do while allowing other people to do. And I think there's a, a really interesting dance for what people are trying to do in the format. Uh, this is... I'm looking at a list from Grand Prix Amsterdam in 2011, and while Canadian Threshold got second in the hand of uh, Thiero Bonaventura, uh, you do have other decks. Uh, the first place list was Bant Stoneblade, playing things like Stoneforge Mystic, Knight of the Reliquary. Uh, pretty efficient removal uh, in terms of Source to Plowshare, and obviously getting backed up with one Jason Mind Sculptor, the greatest of all. Uh, Stoneforge Mystic was able to get you things like Batter Skull, Sword of Feast and Famine, and Umazawa's Jite. But you also do have things like Ant, you have things like Painter, you have things like Counterbalance. So this was a deck that was pretty solid. But this was only the start. In Amsterdam 2011, people were starting to play these decks and starting to understand what was trying to happen with this card, but it, it hadn't been as maximized. And it hadn't been so popular. I think it's funny now thinking about uh, Legacy. People always are jumping at the chance to play Delver Secrets whenever they can. I mean, and now nowadays, it might not be Delver Secrets. But it might be uh, the Shadow deck. It might be the uh, you know, Grixis deck that happens to not play any Delvers at all. But that general strategy has been so popular for so long that it seems funny that there was a time that people didn't immediately want to play it. If you start looking at deck list uh, back from 2011, which I tried, um, you start seeing a very interesting story with what happens with these blue decks. 
Uh, Jesse Hatfield and Alex Hatfield uh, ended up publishing an article on Star City Games in 2011, Too Much Information, uh, Indianapolis, Nashville, Baltimore, Kansas City, and Las Vegas. But they broke down some of the most popular decks that they were seeing from all over. And one of the decks I thought that was really, or one of the things I thought that was very interesting, uh, was the fact that we started seeing some decks playing Delver's Secrets start to do well. Uh, just to take a passage out of this, that over 5% of the field rugged tempo stands out more for its great win record than for its popularity. Although this deck certainly has roots in the Canadian threshold list of the past, its new Lewis Laskin take on the archetype with the new additions of Delver's Secrets and Snapcaster Mage that surfaced in Baltimore, the category should include a Colossal Fuentes win and counterbalance list. Looking at some of these lists, uh, Lewis Laskin was playing essentially what we see as like one of the first sort of shift away from what we considered the threshold list to something a little bit more modern. Uh, you start, you do get to see Delver Secrets, Snapcaster Mage, and Tarmogoyf still are making appearances here, and you do have the one Grim Lava Mancer, something I always think, think is funny to see in these relic decks. And you start to see some of the um, components of the deck that start to separate it from this low-to-the-ground efficient deck to something that's still efficient, but is able to grind out games a lot more effectively. Uh, in addition to your Brainstorms and Dazes and Force of Wills, Lightning Bolts, you start to see things that trade up or, you know, do not allow your opponent to do what they need to do. Uh, Sylvan Library, when you're the aggressor, is a pretty good card. Uh, spell Pierce, Spell Snare, Stifle, starting to shut down what your opponent's doing. Uh, chain Lightning to add to your removal suite. A couple Ponders. And even in this list, a Temporal Spring, which I think putting a permanent on top of your owner's library is pretty interesting. Uh, but I couldn't imagine playing a three-mana sorcery in today's Legacy format. So we still have a ways to go. By comparison, we end up seeing Colossal Fuente's list, and this is, I think, more in line with where we would be watching this format go. Uh, four Delver Secrets, four Lava, Grim Lava Mansus, four Tarmogoyfs. Um, we adding in this list, though, we do have four copies of Sensei's Divining Top and four copies of Counterbalance, a Wombo combo in itself, and four Brainstorms, some Dazes, some Dismembers. And this is a list that's playing four Ponders, which... Uh, the last list was only playing two. So now we're starting to see this this deck kind of get more fleshed out. But it's not popular. Even though it's having a great win percentage, it's not getting the results that you would expect for a deck that's doing so well. Uh, Rug Tempo being 5% of the field uh, in this Legacy Open, only 12 people. Uh, the average finish, not spectacular. 92nd. Um, but... At 49 wins, 39 lo uh, 34 losses, and 4 draws, a win percentage of 58.62%, it's one of the best decks in the field. Uh, behind Reanimator and things like uh, the Green-White Maverick deck, it's definitely a deck that is good, but not popular. People aren't really jumping to play this deck. And, as you can imagine, that starts to change. We start to see this deck get a little bit more popular when you start looking at later events, things like Kansas City, where the deck becomes 7.7% of the field and still boasts a 59% win percentage. And eventually, by the time we get to Las Vegas, a little bit later, it's now 8.9% of the field. Uh, 7, uh, 7 of the that almost 9% is playing what we would kind of consider stock with Delver, and 1% is still holding out. As you could imagine, the version playing Delver Secrets is performing much better than the version without Delver. 57.3% uh, compared to 41.6. So, now we're looking at Delver being one of the better decks in the, in the format. Uh, doesn't have a great win percentage versus Blue-White Stone Blade, but it is... 66% versus uh, Reanimator, which was one of the top decks in the format. 
70% versus uh, Merfolk, and Team America, 61%. Uh, for those who don't remember, uh, Team America, and forgive me if I got this incorrect, uh, was a bug deck that was very attrition-based. Uh, you could imagine this being kind of like a, a shardless bug uh, today, where you relatively uh, astute players. So this deck is now starting to make a name for itself. It's starting to actually make waves. And eventually we start to see a format that is still struggling to get on its feet, but at least has a new card that is getting uh, some strength here. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting uh, was a, an article by Michael Caffrey, uh, the owner of Tales of Adventures. Check them out. Uh, if you're looking at the article, they end up going, uh, doing a good job of what's really wrong with the format. Uh, one of the issues we talked about before with Mental Misstep uh, in the Legacy format was not fun. <laughs> uh, not an interesting place to be. And since then, we we're able to see some evolutions of what's going on. And I think that's actually really interesting to imagine what happens to the Legacy format if Mental Misstep is never banned. I don't think they would ever do that. I think that'd be uh, irresponsible. Well, it's probably the best word to say. But I think it's something that would have obviously changed the format reparably if they never banned that card or even took a little bit longer to ban it. Uh, the format was losing interest, and that was obviously not one of the things that we were particularly happy about. So it being gone, certainly a good thing. Modern releasing in 2011, right before Delver Secrets were released, obviously not good for that as well. The cost associated with the format, obviously, and as well as, well as the availability of some of the cards, all issues. But one of the ones, and I think something that somehow speaks eternally is the fact that who wants to be playing legacy why do you want to play legacy i think if you're playing on the scg tour it makes a lot of sense to actually have that be a point of interest it was one of the main ways that you would be able to get money and frankly if you're looking at the size of these events the standard events were and i don't want to speak out of turn uh always significantly larger than the Legacy format. Uh, people played Standard, they had fun with Standard. People kind of had to play Legacy. And it showed when you start looking at the attendance records uh, over the, their time. So when people are kind of stuck playing Legacy, uh, you don't really want to do that uh, if you don't have to. And if the Star City Circuit is the only place you can really play it outside of your local communities and local stores, uh, it's not like people are clamoring to prepare for the the next PTQ season with getting their legacy decks together. It's just a thing that comes around once in a while. Maybe you play Eternal Weekend. Uh, maybe you see it uh, in a private community or local game store in a region in the Northeast or the West or the uh, Midwest, uh, but you're not seeing it all over the place. You're not seeing it plastered on Magic Online. It's just a format that is essentially being stuck in this weird area where, you know, I can't afford a Force of Will that is insanely expensive online. Uh, my friends don't play it. And if I'm going to travel, I don't really want to bring with me some... Uh, multi, you know, $2,000 deck. I'd rather just play my $150 standard deck and be much happier. Eventually, the Magic Online, I think, changed, but that is not something that I do not have nearly enough information on, so I'm not going to speculate on what eventually fixed Magic Online. Uh, but I do want to keep talking about what happens with this deck. Uh, when we start looking at the GPs, uh, 2011, like I mentioned, was this change be uh, between Delver Secrets and no Delver Secrets, right? The printing of Innistrad was the beginning of this door that's opening up. Uh, after Amsterdam, the next GP that had, you know, the format, uh, had a couple copies in Indianapolis. Esper Stoneblade was the top deck of that, that weekend in the hands of Tom Martell, playing the aforementioned Lingering Souls. But it was a deck that 
I don't think it's really the story of that GP. I think when you start looking at the actual decks here, the one that really stands out to me, at least, is Rug Delver. Rug is, at this point, changed, right? We've now seen a deck that is very dynamic, and we're seeing something that is a lot more streamlined, and I think if you were going to play this in 2023, wouldn't be entirely embarrassing. You've got your Misty Rainforest and Scalding Tarn now uh, that we're looking in, we're looking at this time. Uh, we've got the release of Zendikar, so now these fetch lands are able to make things like Days a lot more effective now that I've got access to my blue-red and blue-green land as far as fetches are concerned. So no more copies of Wooded Foothills. Uh, we do just have three copies of Tropical Island, three copies of Volcanic Island, and four Wastelands. Our four Delver Secrets are backed up by four Nimble Mongooses and four Tarmogoyfs. And we've got our full suite of Brainstorming Ponders, Dazes, Lightning Bolt Ponders. We've got a full set of Stifles, and we have some Spell Snares. Um, shout out to Kenny Caster, though. I do remember the one Synthesis Divining Top making your deck even more effective, if that's somehow possible. Uh, this deck was, I think, one of the first decks that I saw that was just smooth. It The numbers made a lot of sense. It, I could see where everything was coming from. I understood the removal suite that you wanted. You wanted to be able to pick off certain creatures here. You needed to hit certain places there. And this is a, a really solid test. right? In the hands of Kenny Caster and Caleb Durwald, uh, you start to see a deck that is able to pivot effectively early, put a lot of, th a lot of pressure on these decks that are trying to win slowly. Things like... Uh, time spiral, things like things like Ad Nauseam, you're able to see this deck that is sometimes able to go bigger, maybe playing things like Scavenging Ooze or Snapcaster Mage, uh, but also able to play pretty low to the ground as well. By the time we get to GP Atlanta in later 2012, now we're starting to see this deck becoming the best deck. It is no longer something that people can be doing it can be doing uh can do it's something that people are doing uh this ends up being something that is a little bit more heavy on the uh, milling angle things like thought scour end up making this list but we do see things like four copies of spell pierce two copies of spell snare this deck is effective it's slim we have a very interesting spell suite and now things like main deck scavenging use are able to help you if you're end up happening to play in the mirror. And from here, I think the deck has just kind of hit its full stride. Uh, by the time we start looking at GP Denver in 2023, now in addition to things like Rug Delver, which I think is just the default, you have things like Bug Delver. Your Deathrite Shamans and Delver Secrets are teaming up to hang out with Tarmogos and Tomb Stalkers. This deck is very different in the fact that it doesn't have to worry about this inevitability. Uh, you are able to punch people very quickly in the face with things like Kim the Torak. Uh, you still have that Force of Will and Days package, uh, but you also have things like Abrupt Decay, which, you know, laugh in the face of something like a Daze. Even though it does cost a little bit more mana, uh, this is definitely a, a deck that, in my mind, is showing the flexibility of a card like Dover Secrets. It doesn't need to be in this, in this rug shell uh, with these, you know, kind of cheeky cantrips here and there. It can actually be in a deck that is just filled with very powerful cards uh, as long as they cost one or two mana. And Tombstalker, I think, is the beginning of this kind of let's go over the top of our opponent's angle that we start seeing now in our Murktide things. Obviously, I think Tombstalker and Murktide have a lot of similarities. Um, Tombstalker being 8 mana, Murktide being 7, both being Delve creatures with flying, Tombstalker always being a 5-5, five, five. Uh, Delver's um, Murktide region usually being a 6-6 six, six or 7-7 seven, seven or 8-8, eight, eight. Uh, and somehow being significantly better than Tombstalker, uh, being double blue than double black. Uh, this is definitely an upgrade we see over the years, but not one that we've seen yet. 
by the time we get to 2020 or 2013, now we're starting to see more variations of this deck. Uh, in first place, we end up seeing a blue-white-red Delver list that is starting to play the newly printed Trinium Nemesis, a card that was coming from a Commander set. Believe it or not, Commander sets do have powerful cards. I'm sure that's crazy to hear. But we do see Trinium Nemesis as a card that really puts this format uh, on its head, at least for that weekend. Delver Secrets is no longer has to deal with... Uh, arguing with a mongoose or dealing with some weird human shaman, it now gets to play with a core. Stoneforge Mystic ends up allowing you to have this deck that puts a 3-1 protection from your opponent <laughs> creature uh, into play, and then Stoneforge Mystic allows you to kind of pivot that into a even more powerful win con. Things like uh, Batterskull and Umazo's Jite allow you to very easily coast through uh, undeterred, and win a lot of games, especially in the mirror. Not that people were a lot of people were playing the Jeskai variant of Delver lists. Uh, I think a lot of people were still on the uh, bug and rug version, but this was definitely a deck that, by adding st uh, Swords to Plowshare, uh, had a pretty good shot of dealing with some of these more challenging decks that we're seeing at the time. Um, by now, in uh, 2013, we do have Tarmogoyf, which I think has established itself as a main threat. Uh, Shardless Agent has now been printed, and we're seeing Cascade be very relevant. Uh, but also things like Dredge are here. Uh, we do see people like Sam Black playing Knight of the Reliquary, a very large creature, uh, in a deck that eventually we end up seeing something very similar to this in the hands of Reed Duke, uh, being able to play one-drop Noble Hierarchs into turn two, a true name nemesis being backed up by this Toad Forge Mystic package. And while I think TM Box list, very innovative for the time, uh, playing four Force of Wills and three Dazes, uh, a couple copies of Green Sun Zenith, I think the list ended up, ended up getting first was just a lot more direct with what it was trying to do. You didn't need to go through these hoops of playing this these one drop creatures into these two drop creatures. It just wanted to play the game the way it was always playing the game, and eventually it would slowly but surely knock you out three points at a time, some combination of Trinity Nemesis, some combination of Lightning Bolts, ending the game and closing the door very, very efficiently. And over the next couple of years, you do see constantly Bug Delver and Jeskai Delver, Rug Delver in different shells, just winning tournaments and top eighting legacy events here and there. Um, eventually, we do see things like Blue-Red, which becomes, in my mind, efficient enough uh, to start putting up results as well. But I think the one that really st stuck with me as a newer player was the Grixis list. I think the Grixis list, list was the first time I was actually interested in getting kind of back into Legacy. Uh, I had a unfortunate situation where I ended up getting my Legacy deck stolen uh, at my my LGS, and it really took took me out of the format. It was a bit devastating, but at the time, it was really cool to see this deck that looked really powerful, really cool. Uh, you start seeing that combination of Deathrite Shaman and Delver Secrets with Grimeg Angler and Young Pyromancers. You have your uh, Cabal Therapies, and looking back at Christian Calcom's list from 2015, it's not even a list that's playing full Cabal Therapy's main deck. And that eventually would become something that would not be out of the ordinary. Cabal Therapy was really interesting when you combine it with Young Pyromancer, being able to cast it, see your opponent's hand, make a token, and then just recast it again. Uh, something that made it super powerful, especially, was being kind of rocketed up with Deathrite Shaman. And while we ended up seeing this deck I think defined the legacy format for a long a long period of time. This eventually was one of the reasons why we start seeing Deathrite Shaman eventually see a ban as well. Alongside with Gitaxian Prip, of course. I think Delver of Secrets always has this really funny habit of picking friends that are very good for it, uh, 
but probably a negative influence on everybody else. Um, Delver Secrets ends up being this thing that you start seeing it paired with cards that you're like, should we allow that? Is that okay? And I think that's the constant thing with this card, where Death Rite Shaman, I think, was, in my mind at least, uh, very good in the shard list, bug lists, and once people kind of figured out how good Death Rite Shaman were, we're like, I'm just going to put this in my Delver deck, and we'll see what happens here. And, believe it or not, became good. Uh, Cataxium Probe, I think, was a card that took a, a little bit longer than it probably should have to get rolling off the ground, but once people figured out what, the, what to do with it, made a lot of sense. And it ended up defining uh, this kind of combination between Cataxium Probe, Cabal Therapy, Young Pyromancer, all backed up by either Delver Secrets or Death Rite Shaman early. A, a very difficult one-two punch to deal with, having your hand ripped apart by <laughs> Cabal Therapy with perfect information alongside the ability to actually see uh, whether they should play a Delver Secrets into your removal spells from the Cataxian Probe. I mean, how do you even fight that? So by the time we leave 2015 uh, and start looking ahead, the writing is on the wall for our good friend Deathrite Shaman. Uh, by the time we get to 2015, at this point, it is very clear that Delver Secrets is one of the best cards that you could be playing in the format. By the time we get to 2017, we are starting to see that uh, Death Rite Shaman is certainly on its way out the door. Uh, 2017, in, in my mind, is kind of the uh, the pinnacle of what was the Delver deck, at least for the time. By 2017, we're definitely looking at a point where Grixis Delver was, in my mind, I think the de facto best deck in the format. Miracles, I think, obviously had some very good position. Uh, even though at this point, we are looking at a deck that is fully powered by Counterbalance and Simpsons Divining Top, I still think Delver Secrets held this really special place in being this deck that was just so diverse and so able to deal with threats and to just steal games. I mean, the combination of Cabal Therapy in the main deck now was just stock. Uh, my friend Chas Hinkle actually made uh, top eight of that that event, as well as Michael Major and Nate Barton. Uh, Reed Duke and Craig Wesco as well in this top eight. And Andrew Solano, Cody Napier. Uh, a pretty solid top eight list. But this deck is now at a point where even if you know what you know, even even if you know what they're playing, you just have answers. I mean, it's easy enough to deal with the number of creatures, but you also have to deal with the Sophiolic Vortex and the Winter Orbs. You have to deal with the Cabal Therapies and the Ancient Grudges. And that's not even to mention the Flusterstorms and the Painful Truth uh, helping them recoup value. So this deck now has become something that is super efficient. This is actually the deck that I played, and I, it was, I think, arguably one of the best decks I've ever played. And I think if I had to do it again, 100%, I am running back that, that list from 2017. And now comes kind of the after part. Because I do feel like there is a kind of a fall after this. I, it, it is interesting to see that Delver is this constant in the legacy metagame, but there comes a point where we start to kind of grow past it. And I think this is the same thing that happened to Nimble Mongoose. And there was a pairing... There was a point in time where Nimble Mongoose was the premier one-drop threat. And eventually, Delver Secrets came and it usurped it. it. It took its throne and said, you can play second fiddle. And eventually, the Delver Secrets found better friends. Stronger friends, cooler friends, ones that had cool motorcycles and stuff. And eventually, we just... Stop seeing Nimble Mongoose. And the idea of playing Nimble Mongoose or even Werebear in 2023 Legacy is laughable, to be, I guess, most polite. Would the deck be terrible? I don't think so. I think the deck would actually still be serviceable. But it's not the most powerful thing you can be doing, and I think it's it's probably in your disinterest uh, to be playing something like that. I mean, even as far as one-drops are concerned in green, I mean, I could be playing Hex Drinker. And that card, while 
being default a two-power creature, uh, also eventually gets protection from instants and maybe protection from everything, being a 6-6 if I get to that point. There's just better threats. And there are better reasons to be playing green than a one-mana shroud creature that might or might not be big enough. That doesn't allow you to play Murktide Regent, that asks you to play a lot of wildly inefficient spells in order to make it worthwhile. Instead, I could just play Dreadhorde Arcanist. I could play things like True New Nemesis, and even for a time I could play things like Renin Six. The fact that Delver Secrets, once again, always finds these really powerful threats and makes that shell into the most feared thing, I think is not a coincidence. I think by putting yourself in a situation where uh, Delver Secrets, Days, and Force of Will exist together, I think you're always allowing yourself to have a deck that can kind of stand up to anything. Counterspells, obviously, are strong, but that one mana cost is perfect. It's never too expensive. It never has to be something that overpowers or asks too much. It just wants you to play instants. It wants you to play things that are efficient. It wants you to play things that are cheap. And it wants you to be able to manipulate your deck. And I wanted to do that anyways. Like You didn't have to sell me on being a 3-2 flyer. Uh, that's just a bonus. And it continues to always just be a bonus. I get to constantly slot in powerful cards. Cards that eventually are going to get banned into my deck make it more powerful, and very likely win the game. But, like it happened with the Nubamongoose, that doesn't last forever. There's always going to be a new card. And I think we didn't see much of a change in what the Delver deck was until the last few years. I think up until 2019, we were kind of expecting that Delver Secrets would just be the perfect one-drop. I think Modern Horizons 2 was kind of that tipping point. I think once we got the addition of Dragon Freed Channeler, I think things changed. That was the first time I think I've actually seen a Delver list that didn't play for Delvers. And I think history has given it enough time, right, if we're looking at a deck that's been around since 2011, to say that the deck is still Delver. It's the spirit of Delver, trying to do the same Delver things and playing most of the same Delver cards, but Delver is arguably not the most powerful card in the deck. I think Dragon Reach Channeler is. It's a card that can dominate game playing, help manipulate your deck, set up the top of your deck. It is better in multiples. It helps set up your Delver Secrets. It's kind of the big brother that came back from college and said, oh, I got you, kid. Which is great, but also weird. Right? Like, it's just, it's odd to imagine a time where Delver Secrets is not the premier one-drop in your deck. And we start to see small changes that go along with that. I think the first time I, I personally noticed was the first time I went from uh, three copies of Volcanic Island to four copies of Volcanic Island. And then, suddenly, I was adding in a Steam Vents as well. Not used to doing that. But if I want to play the best one-drop in my deck, I need red mana. Not necessarily blue. And But I want an island, because I still want the days. That tension you now have between your threats and your protection, that red-blue pool starts to change your mana, and... It's one of the things I think, as long as we have Dragon Age Channeler, we're going to continue seeing that general transition uh, forward. Because as much as I would love to play Delver Secrets on 1, I also want to play my Dragon Age Channeler on 1 too. Modern list, obviously. I probably don't need to tell anybody. Uh, modern legacy list, that is. Are more focused around other creatures. And we saw a period of time where people were cutting down. When Ragavan was legal, uh, you had four Ragavans, four Dragon Ray Channeler, and maybe you'd have two Delver Secrets, or maybe you just one, or maybe just zero. Now we're back in a place, I think, without the addition of Ragavan, that uh, four Delver Secrets, four Dragon Ray Channeler is a 
very logical starting point for most decks. Now you have a plethora of options. I, I think Grixis is now the default with your Orcish Bowmasters as well. But this is also potentially another situation where we start to see a change in that deck as well. Right? Delver, Secrets, and Dragon Reach Channeler both being one toughness creatures, facing down Orcish Bowmasters can be problematic. Orcish Bowmasters, of course, is one of those cards that uh, has been added in one of the more recent sets, so I think its impact on the format is still up for debate. How good is it? Not sure. How popular is it? Very. Uh, we're seeing it all over the deck and all over the place in a number of decks. It's wildly powerful, and it's wildly popular. Is it going to drive Delver of Secrets out to pasture? I don't think so. I think we're going to see this deck continue to be around for a very long time, and I expect Orgish Bowmaster to be a part of the legacy format for a long time going forward, in whatever shell that looks like. But I'm always going to try to keep in mind what Dover Secrets did to the format. In some ways, I think it, it did help kind of reinforce that this is a format that could endure basically anything. I mean, Delver Secrets wasn't around when Mystical Tutor got banned, uh, making, in my mind, the Reanimator deck at least <laughs> reasonable. Uh, but Legacy has seen a lot of things, right? Um, it Once we get rid of Mental Misstep, uh, we start to see the banning of Treasure Cruise in 2015, uh, the unbanning of World Gorger Dragon... We see Dig Through Time finally get banned as well, later in September of 2015. And then the banning of Sensei's Divining Top, Death Rite Shaman, Ataxian Probe, Renin Six. Let's not even discuss Oko. Oh, Oko. What a time. And even things like Mycosynth Lattice and Underworld Breach. We had a time where the format was just very strong and very different. I mean, the Loris Grixis list, I think, were... Oh my gosh, a flash in the pan, but also I think one of the most powerful decks people could be playing. But now that you're looking at the legacy format, you start seeing, like, once again, all those friends that Delver had. Uh, Dreadheart Arcanist and Oko Thief of Crowns it might be, I think, some of the more obvious and egregious ones. Uh, probably Ragavan too. Shout out to that monkey pirate. But it's probably not the last card to be paired up with Delver Secrets and eventually see a ban. I don't know what the next card would be. I don't think anything in my mind is egregious currently. I, I think when you're looking at Dragon Rage Channeler, it's fair enough. But there eventually will be another card. Maybe it'll be red. But maybe it'll be blue. Maybe it'll be better than Delver Secrets. Or maybe it'll be in white. Or it'll be in green. And suddenly we're adding a, a second or a third color to some of these lists. But regardless of what we're doing, I think that Delver Secrets ends up having this really interesting history throughout what defined what the best deck in the format was. And I think if we look back in 20 years, we're going to be surprised by how long Delver Secrets lasts in the format. Well, kind of always being that general behind... Uh, the ruler just silently pulling the strings. I, I think Delver Secrets always happens to evade scrutiny when we start looking at things like Days and Force of Will, but I, I think Delver Secrets probably should get a little bit more blame. But it probably won't. Alright, this was definitely a little bit longer than I expected, but hopefully it was enjoyable. But if you like something like this and obviously want a little bit more structure to it, a little more planning, uh, let us know, because I don't mind talking about cards like this. Um, and honestly, I think talking with Mapson about, uh, you know, his impression of some of these cards, I think would be really interesting too. Uh, we didn't even get to talk about him playing blue-red Delver fairies. Um, so just let me know if you are interested in something like this in the comments, and uh, maybe we'll get back to uh, another card. Maybe we actually will do that deep dive on dark depths, uh, which I think would be really neat. Uh, anyways, if you are, uh, if you are free this weekend, please check out, uh, our friends over at 
European Legacy Masters. Once again, they have an invitational uh, invitation-only tournament, uh, seeing players from 21 different countries face off in the Legacy format. I'm very excited for that. I think it'll be a very, very cool event. Um, and I think it's really neat to see Legacy being played across the sea, uh, if you're a U.S. listener, at least. Also being able to see something that is actually able to use proxies in their event, hoping to make the legacy format a little bit more affordable for people um, and make it available for everybody. And I think one of the best things about Magic when we start using proxies is that it doesn't matter about your wallet, right? It matters about your brain, right? How good are you at your deck? What are the things that actually matter in the game? So I am very excited to actually see that. And if you are interested in checking us out uh, obviously you know i am bad luck bandit uh, you can check me out on twitter if you're interested in finding michael you can message him at expedition map on twitter as well we do obviously have the depth underscore podcast on twitter if you want to leave us a comment if you want to tell us something else that we were uh that i missed um, obviously there's going to be some errors in here uh, but i would like to you know hear your thoughts and hear what you think about this episode in general so definitely do that okay with that i'm going to head out uh love you love our patrons and i will see you soon all right bye Given my attempts for green, the scene sees reclaim. Untap sack of flagstones, go seek the planes, then tutor up the stage to pull out your playbill. Darkness podcast, our in Billy Mitchell and Michael Mapson on the microphone, dripping in mox diamonds, the collector of curtains up on act one of this magic show. Setting the forest so dense it looks decomposed with red every nights, crush against death shadow. On the legendary lake covered in ice and snow. Underneath the surface looks a lonely evil. An avatar so dark it could cause a people the night lunges forward going for the kill but death shadows too tricky it just won't sit still it's stuff in denial compile a stack so thick the bazooka bug emerges with Gurmax angling the night takes a swing at the zombie fishes but falls submerged for such a distance forsaken in the haze of the street rape fringes who want to suffer out they don't sneak forgiveness the final breath draws a deafening silence a sound so sinister no one could describe it it's like the subtle cracking of a turtle shell or the surgical extraction of emerging hell the shards of ice feel a force of vigor the looming fear releases growing bigger and bigger until a demon's fingers linger toward the shadow of death an all-consuming hush the land goes swept, the night washes up, frozen on the ice. Dried arbors thaw her out in the green sun's light. An expedition map suddenly unfurls, revealing Merit Lage has rearranged the world. 